0: I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Psalms. Uh, We're going to look this morning at Psalm 74 as we continue our look in this book three of the Psalter. So Psalm 74, would you please stand for the reading of God's word. Oh God, Why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. And all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff, is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. This is God's word. Thank you, God. Would you please have a seat? Well, today, as you know, we celebrate Easter. I would suggest, I would say that Easter is the greatest day on the calendar for a follower of Christ. It marks the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ cannot be overstated. It is simply the most important event in all of history. It is the one event that sets Christianity apart from every other religion of the world. It is such a great historical event that it shifted the day of worship for the people of God from the traditional Sabbath on the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week, Sunday, since that is the day that Christ rose from the dead. Everything hinges on this event. So you might ask, why on earth are we looking at Psalm 74? (laughs) It's kind of a downer as you read it. And we're looking at Psalm 74 because it illustrates... A time of complete, complete and utter despair for the people of God. A time when all of God's promises seem to have unraveled, as if God Himself had been vanquished. And without this time of darkness, the light of the resurrection loses its context. We can't grasp the glory of the resurrection without understanding something of the utter despair that preceded it. And that's what this psalm takes us into it takes us into the kind of despair that the disciples would have faced after Christ himself was crucified as they watched a horrific event happen in their day in the old testament of the place where god had occupied in the city of jerusalem it's a psalm that lament, laments this particularly devastating event which I would say is the greatest defeat in all of the Old Testament. It's the time when the Babylonians came upon the city of Jerusalem, uh, put it under siege, and conquered it, went into the temple and destroyed it, burning it down to the ground. Israel had faced defeat before, of course. We know that. As you read through the Old Testament, you read lots of times in which they went up up against an enemy and were chased back, in which they were defeated and they lost many, many people. But this is the only time in which we read about a defeat in which God Himself seems to be vanquished, for that's exactly what they're facing, you realize, As the Babylonians came in and took Jerusalem and conquered it, putting it to fire, chopping down everything, destroying it, taking all of the elements that were in the temple back to their own temple, back to their own homeland as a trophy, those were meant to be trophies that said, our God has conquered your God. Your God is gone. He was weaker. He was pushed out. And that's exactly where the psalmist finds himself lamenting. Now, he's not in a time when there's something that would give him a sense of hope. Well, what now? How do you face such a despairing time? And, and the psalm, as, as many of the psalms often do, they provide us a model with how we deal with things that perhaps don't make sense, that seem, completely, seem to be completely and utterly despairing. So, what do you do? Well, as the psalmist walks us through, we first of all see him making an appeal, and we see him continuing to revise that appeal as he walks his way through this prayer. And it helps us to understand something about what he's experiencing, something about what he's feeling in the moment. And I know, as you know, when you go to the Lord in prayer, those prayers are often dictated, those prayers are often impacted by the way we are feeling about the circumstances around us and about the awareness that we have of whether God is even there. So he at least goes to the Lord in prayer in a time of appeal, and he utters this appeal before God in the first few verses. He says this, O oh God, why do You cast us off forever? Why does Your anger smoke against the sheep of Your pasture? Remember Your congregation which You have purchased of old, which You have redeemed to be the tribe of Your heritage. Remember Mount Zion where You have dwelt. Now, often many of the psalms, they'll open with kind of a a grand summary statement of the prayer that he's making, and we see that here as well. It is giving a summary of the appeal that he's making. But I can't help, as I was reading through this psalm this week, I couldn't help coming away that there is some sense in which this language just doesn't quite do the justice of what he knows to be true about God. There is reflected in just the feel of the psalm itself that the psalmist isn't quite sure that while he lifts up an appeal to God, that God is there to hear it. It just doesn't grip you with this sense of confidence. And I imagine that many of you have been there at times when you've prayed to the Lord about something, perhaps day after day after day, and you don't see anything happening. And you can't help but feel, even though you may lift up that prayer and that appeal, less and less confidence day by day that God will actually do anything about it. And think about the psalmist situation in which it was. From the time that Jerusalem itself was destroyed and the people of Israel were carried into captivity, there was some 70 years before they began to return, where they began to feel some sense of hope that God was answering such an appeal. So how long did it take for this psalmist to write this psalm? How many days after the fall of Jerusalem did he go? praying with such an appeal, and every day finding it not answered, not answered, not answered. So what do you do when you find yourself in that situation? I think it's interesting what he does. He just starts to take inventory. It's as though he wants to go before the Lord and say, Lord, this is why I'm so in need of an appeal. This is why I need you to do something. This is how bad things are. And he just starts walking through a list of what it is that's happened. And this is where we get the gist of why he's praying in the first place. So, if you look in verse 3, he says, "'Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins.'" It's though he's taking God by the hand and saying, and pulling Him in and saying, "'I want you to look and see what's happened.'" Let's walk through these cities, these, these streets of Jerusalem. "'Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins.'" The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. "'Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place.'" They set up their own signs for signs. They set up their own things that would show their God is victorious. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees, and all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. You can almost picture what was happening when they set siege and finally made it into the, the area of the temple. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. I mean, things were bad when this happened. If, if you go and you can read this account at the end of Second Kings or the end of Second Chronicles, and it's, it's a devastating defeat. As the Babylonian army had come in and they had laid siege to Israel, and it's describing them as you go and read these, they'd laid siege for so long that the people inside the walls had run out of food. They were beginning to starve. And while we don't necessarily read the description of what they were doing in this account, we've read it before of what happens in sieges and they've run out of food. They begin to eat all kinds of things they ought not to eat, including at times their own children. Now, I don't know if that's what happened in this particular siege, but sieges are horrid. And the siege got so bad that the, the men of war, the men of the army, breached the wall, and tried to make their own escape to the east, towards the Arabah. Can you imagine? Here are the people lying behind the walls for protection, and the army itself and the king decides to try and make a run for it, leaving the people behind. It's not a good look for Israel. And the army, of course, they don't, they don't escape without being seen the army sees them and then pursues them and chases them down catches the king takes them what takes them up to where the emperor is in a town up north where they issue the judgment against him and they kill his sons in front of him so that's the last thing he sees and they put out his eyes and the army goes in to the walls with their hatchets and their hammers and they destroy the sanctuary they burn it to the ground Many of the people that were inside the city, they they haul off into captivity and replant them in towns in their own empire. They leave the poorest of the poor in the land in the wake of the destruction to try and recultivate the little bit of land that remains untouched. So it is a, a time in which everything says, God, this is your house. You've been defeated. Things are really bad. Do you ever do that when you're in prayer? You're you're feeling so down that God is not there, it's as though you want to wake Him up and say, look, let's just walk through how bad the situation is that I'm facing. Look what's happening in my life. Look what's happening in the life of your people. Do you see it, God? And as if that's not bad enough, he says, here's the consequences of that as he continues in his prayer. And look in verse 9, he says, we do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, oh God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. He's saying essentially, God, you're doing nothing. Your hands are in your pockets. And we don't hear your voice. You've grown silent. Now, there's a variety of reasons you could say for that, and the one obvious one that would have been to most of the people, they would think, well, our God just wasn't strong enough. He got beat by the other God, because that's the way they thought in the ancient times. When the ancient empire of Assyria had come through some hundred years before, when King Hezekiah was king and laid siege to Jerusalem, and they're shouting at the people behind the, the, the walls, explaining why they ought to give themselves up, they're saying this, look, your God has abandoned you. Every God that we have come across has, has, has been defeated by our God. And they begin to name all the towns in the Fertile Crescent that come on their march towards Jerusalem saying, this city has fallen, this city has fallen, this city has fallen, and their God was weaker than our God, and their God was weaker than our God. And now we're at your very doors. Now the statement is that our God is stronger than your God, therefore you ought to give up. Now in Hezekiah's day, they didn't give up. And they were defeated, God showing Himself to be the stronger God. But here they've laid siege, and you might expect that the people of Israel are thinking, well, we withstood a siege before. God has shown Himself stronger before. He'll do it again. But in this case, He doesn't. And not only does He not, but now we don't hear His voice at all. The psalmist is describing how he's feeling. You've gone silent. Now, when I grew up in Oklahoma, we heard tornado sirens a lot. Some of you grew up in those towns, you heard those sirens a lot. And you'd hear those sirens, and you'd hear them so often that you kind of grow used to them, and you might perk up for a moment, but then you kind of quickly go about your day because, you know, over time, you're finding that, well, nothing bad happened to you personally. You might have heard a story of, yeah, it touched down on the outside of town. It may have done a damage. It knocked down a tree or two. You know, occasionally it might even... It might even do some damage to a mobile home way out in the country, but it doesn't really have any bearing on the life of most of the people in town. So, they'd hear those sirens go off and they'd learn how to ignore them. Well, the people of God up until this time, they had lots of prophets who were like those sirens, who would speak and give them warning. I want you to take note, there's a tornado coming, there's danger coming. You haven't been living according to the covenant obligations that you have. There is a tornado coming, but the temple had still stood. Life wasn't really affected. They had grown accustomed to those sirens and perhaps learned how to tune them out. But now the tornado had swept through and it had destroyed everything. You know, that happened to us back in Oklahoma in 1999, May 3rd, for those of you who may remember that day. It was the one day that we went from not paying attention to the sirens to not being able to (laughs) uh, live without them Uh, because a tornado came through, took about a mile swath out of Moore and South Oklahoma City. Uh, We were living there at the time. I still remember driving through and seeing the devastation. You could see uh, posts, I don't know if they're from fences or what, sticking out of the sides of concrete buildings like an arrow had been shot into a, you know, a target. You could, cars had been blown from one side of a highway to the other and were sitting in trees. It's the strangest thing. It was an ominous scene. And those neighborhoods in which you went through, they were unrecognizable. You know, if you'd have driven through, you recognize where you are, maybe because there's a house here or there's a tree here. Well, there wasn't any houses or trees left. There were sticks sticking out of the ground. One of our families who was in our church was, was, was describing when they tried to go back to their house that they couldn't find it because there was no landmarks. It is a devastating thing. And, and after that day, after that storm kept through, we were listening for the sirens, especially that summer. The psalmist is listening For the sirens, the prophets, to tell them, What do we do now? And he doesn't hear any. It's as though the sirens have been wiped out. They're gone. The scene we're we're seeing, it is one of utter despair. And if you want to understand what was happening in the day that Jesus, that final week in his life in which he went into Jerusalem, which seemed like in a very victorious way, goes into the temple, casts out the money changers. Talks to his disciples, but then is arrested, just like the city was laid siege to. They still had hope, right? Jesus is Jesus. He's the Son of God. Nothing can happen to him. He's our hope. But instead, they declare him guilty and they hang him on a cross, and he dies just like the temple was destroyed in the Old Testament. I don't know what the disciples prayed. I don't know if they went back and looked at this prayer and thought, hmm, I wonder how the psalmist prayed. Maybe we should be praying that way. We don't have any record of how they prayed. All that we know about what happened to the disciples after Jesus died is that they themselves were afraid the same thing was going to happen to them, and they locked themselves away in a room, hiding from the Jews, hiding in fear. all hope was gone, right? Our God has been vanquished. He's been defeated. He's been destroyed. Now, fortunately for the disciples, they didn't have to wait 70 years because on the third day, Jesus appeared alive in that locked room. Even though the door was locked, there He is alive which is interesting because they'd been told that already, that he wasn't in the tomb by the ladies who'd gone there and come back and given report. We hear that Jesus is alive. He's not in the tomb. And you know what the disciples did? They didn't believe him. Ah, that can't be it. Peter and John went to see for themselves, and all they found was an empty tomb. Wondering, what on earth has happened? Where is the body of Jesus? Perhaps feeling like God is silent. And there, in that locked room, there Jesus appears to them in the flesh. In the flesh, He appears to them. And I imagine they're shaking their heads, pinching themselves, wondering, is He really here? Is He really here? Now, one of them wasn't there at the time that He came, the first time. A man by the name of Thomas, you've probably heard of him, right? And when, he, and when He came back later to the room and found the disciples and they told Him what had happened, He didn't believe them, even though there's 11 of them telling them, No, we saw Jesus in the flesh. He's risen from the dead. Nah, I won't believe it. I don't believe you. That can't happen. Unless I see him standing here in the flesh and I put my fingers in his hands and my hand in his side, I will not believe it. Well, eight days later, Jesus reappeared in the same room behind the locked doors, and Thomas is there, and he looks at Thomas, and he says, Thomas, take your hand and put your finger in my hand. Put your hand in my side. See, my wounds are real, and my flesh is here, that I am alive. They went from this place of complete darkness and despair to this place of of hope and wonder, what does this mean? For they still didn't really know what it meant, by the way, when Jesus rose from the dead. They know somehow He had come back from the dead, that it meant something very significant, that man by himself can't do that. God is behind it. But what it meant, they didn't really understand, even then. Not until later, when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to come upon them, and then things begin to make sense. Now, the psalmist, unfortunately, he doesn't have that experience. The temple is not rebuilt. Jesus has not come back from the dead. He's just left in his despair, and he still continues to revise his appeal. And it is interesting how he appeals, because Because of the fact that the prophets have gone silent, and we don't know exactly why this is, all he can do is wonder, well, maybe we as a people are to blame and not God. So, he begins to recount, well, what is God? Is our God capable? What has He done in the past? Does He have a track record? And he begins to go through that track record. Verse 12, Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Now, what's he talking about there? He's talking about the time in which God had, had, had split the waters of the sea and brought the Israelites free and rescued them from their slavery in Egypt. And the Leviathan, the creatures of the sea, the representative, the symbolic nature of the Pharaoh and the army of Egypt as they marched through are crushed. God's enemies were crushed. This is, what, this is what he's recalling. I know, God, that you're capable of this. And he goes on. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. When did he do this? He does this when they're wandering in the wilderness. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. So it's, it's not as though it's limited to this little act in this Middle East to rescuing a people. Now He's going to the whole earth and it's observing, God, You are the creator of the earth. You set every boundary in the earth. You set the stars in the sky. You are a capable God. This doesn't make sense to us. Why did this happen? It's not because you were defeated. That's what He's getting to implicitly by recalling who the Lord is. So why did this happen? He doesn't say explicitly, but there is this implicit nature. If it didn't happen because you're weaker than their God, it had to have happened for some other reason. And the prophets we know have been warning us long time again that we are not living in the manner that you called us to live. And if he's a careful psalmist, this is, remember this is a psalm of Asaph. He's one who served in the temple. He should have been familiar with with the covenant of God Himself, as He refers to it. The covenant is, what, is the words that God gave to Moses that defined how the people were to relate with this God who has brought them to Himself. And one thing Moses described is that if you are not going to live according to this, God is going to bring an enemy nation, and He's going to destroy this place, and He's going to carry you into captivity. He does have a voice of the prophet, just not one in the present. He has one a voice from the past. and says, this has happened because you yourself have been unfaithful. Now, as we go back to the day of Jesus, why did Jesus die? Was it because God Himself was being defeated? We know the answer to that, don't we? No, of course not. It's because the people of God had not been faithful. And so judgment had to come. Judgment had to come. So how do we appeal well, we know that when we are experiencing devastating things, and we know we ourselves are deserving of perhaps the things that we are experiencing that are hard in our lives, how do we pray? Well, let's look at how the psalmist continues to pray, for he has, re, he has revived his appeal, he has modified his appeal. Now look what he says, beginning in verse 18, "'Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and the foolish people reviles Your name. Do not deliver the soul of Your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of Your poor forever.'" have regard for the covenant. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise Your name. Arise, O God, defend Your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at You all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. There is this appeal to the covenant that God has made with His people. There is an appeal to the reputation of God Himself being on the line. So when you go before the Lord and you're appealing your circumstances, as bad as they might be, what is your appeal? God, be faithful to your covenant. Is God faithful to your covenant? Because you have an event to look back that they didn't have an event to look back. You have the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which definitively says that God has dealt with your unfaithfulness. He has dealt with it. How do we know He's finished dealing with it? Well, because Christ rose from the dead. You know, Paul writes in Romans, he says, you have died with Christ. Why was that important? because you're the one who deserves to die. And if you don't die, then there's a problem with the justice of God. So, there is a sense in which He says, you have been united to Christ in such that you yourself died when Christ died on the cross. That was your death. So, if you want to understand the importance of the resurrection, if you've been united with Christ in His death, and if He has not risen from the dead, well, where does that leave us? That leaves us also just facing death. But God did raise Jesus from the dead, which means your sin, your guilt, your shame has been fully taken care of, has been fully justified in the eyes of God. Therefore, the appeal to the covenant, to the appeal to the promises that God has made is a valid appeal. It is the only appeal that we have. We're saying, God, save me, rescue me, not because I am worthy of myself of being rescued, not because I have lived faithfully before you, because we can't say any of those things. But what we can say is, Lord, rescue me because you have made a promise and you have kept it by sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die in my place and to be raised to new life. See, that's why we have hope when we face times of utter darkness and despair in life Today, we have a God who has a track record, not only the track record of setting all the boundaries of the earth, of rescuing His people in very tangible, physical ways in the Old Testament history, but also we look back at how He willingly gave up His only Son to pay the ultimate price of death and then brought Him back from the dead to show that our justice has been completely resolved That the problem that we had in being unfaithful in His covenant, even that He has taken care of, so that we can pray with the psalmist, with a revived appeal, but yet much more hopeful than even the psalmist had, much more hopeful than the psalmist had. The psalms are great models for prayer, but you have to remember they were written before Christ came. And was crucified and was risen from the dead. So, while there are Psalms that don't always end up with the greatest of hope, just remember, they didn't have this event, but we do. I don't know what's going to happen in your future life, what kind of circumstances you're going to face, what kind of devastating or despair that's going to come along your way because the circumstances become hard or harsh or the prayers don't seem to be answered. But I do know this. I do know that you have reason to hope that you are invited to come before the Lord, to lay out your circumstances before you, even if it means you yourself need to know that God is willingly holding your hand as you recite them. I do know that when you go before the Lord, there is real, tangible reason to hope. Because Jesus Christ is not in the grave that He rose from the dead. I could add, I know His tomb is empty because I went there a couple of weeks ago. And there was no one there except a bunch of tourists. Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for Easter morning and how we understand the light in joy and glory of the resurrection because we understand something of the nature of the darkness and the despair that brought it about. Father, I pray that you would solidly plant us in this truth about your track record that Jesus Christ, your Son, was sent to earth to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we deserve to die, so that as we put our faith in Him, are united to Him, We are not only united in His death, but also in His resurrection. Therefore, we have hope no matter what we may face circumstantially in this life today. Would you help us walk in light of this hope? In Jesus' name, amen.